0: This
3: is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.
4: Holy moly. Hello. How are you doing? I'm Ray Harkins, and this is the show called 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Not only is it a show, but it's a podcast. Forgive me. I'm trying to do these more uh, sort of improv, less planned intros because, you know, sometimes I, I don't want to make this feel like a radio show. You know, clearly there are very, very professional people doing this podcast thing where it's like it sounds amazing and they're doing it on a professional level that realistically I'm never going to achieve. So I don't want this to sound canned. I want this to sound like me and you hanging out in whatever you're doing, like say you're running on a treadmill, I'm right next to you, just kind of talking, maybe talking to a friend, you're eavesdropping. So that's what I'm trying to create. But anyways, this is a show in which we talk to people who are involved or have been involved or have been affected by this whole underground music scene, punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever you'd like to call it, in some pretty serious ways. And this person Uh, is definitely one of them. I've known him for quite some time. His name is Matt Johnson. He is an author. He wrote a book called American Hearts, and he also sang for some hardcore bands called Preacher Gone to Texas and Ignite the Will. He's probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. I remember in some of my first conversations I had with him, I was like, whoa, like this dude's serious. He's on the level. He knows his stuff. And I'm just always inspired when I meet people like that because, uh, You know, I I definitely think that there is a tendency, especially within uh, independent music, to maybe not care about school, to not care about learning in certain respects. Uh, And Matt is the complete antithesis of that. He is... Dove in headfirst to so many concepts and things that like math. I'm not good at math. He's incredible at math and he's worked at the Pentagon. Anyways, I'm not going to bury the lead too much here, but so let's get some business pleasantries out of the way and then you can go about uh, listening to this podcast. So Amazon affiliate code. I'm going to bug you about it basically for the next forever. (laughs) You need to hop into the show notes of whatever podcast catcher you are using to listen to this thing and click on the link. Save it as a bookmark on your phone, on your laptop, whatever you're using Amazon for. And then basically, we get a 3 or 4% kickback on whatever you're buying. Your prices don't change. They stay the same. Basically, it just gives us a little, hey, pat in the back from Amazon. Thanks for steering people our direction. So it's an easy way for you to contribute money without actually sending a PayPal donation or some version of that. So do that, and I really, really appreciate it for those of you that have done it already. And I'm sorry, I wish I could just section you out where it's like okay you person over there i know that you've already done this so but i can't i i don't have the technological capabilities of doing that and then uh let's see what else um i've just been so damn busy at work that i haven't even had time to really concentrate on much besides i went to see a movie green room you need to see green room immediately i'm trying so hard to get the director on this show because uh, basically he's an old punk dude and this movie is a total homage to playing in bands and it evoked so many feelings and emotions. And plus it's a super intense movie uh, for me personally, obviously touring in bands for years and all that sort of stuff, but go see green room. Okay. Just, just, it's, it's better if you just watch maybe like one preview, don't dive too far into it as far as, you know, all the spoilers that are other and what have you. Um, It's just a really, really visceral, awesome thing for you to watch so do that and then um yeah like i said matt johnson he uh he he shares some really really interesting and cool things about what it's like writing a book like i said what it's like to work in the pentagon because very very few people (laughs) get to work in there so uh yeah i suggest that you sit down and listen to this whole episode because even though he may not be a household name from like oh this guy sings for the band and he's got a million followers on social media or whatever that doesn't matter good stories are good stories and matt tells good stories so thank you very much matt for coming on and here is our discussion i mean i i know obviously we've met when um uh we were because i don't think we ever met when i played in taken correct like we only met okay that's what i thought so we met, I I know that, uh, Makoto played with Preacher. Um, yes. Yes. And I think that was the first time just because obviously our mutual friend, Matt Moody played, Uh played the band with you. Um, and I, Oh no, no. We played with ignite the will. That's what we played. Yeah. That's what it was. And
0: that was in Moline. Um, yeah. Makoto, you guys Karaz studio. I remember it. Um, by the way, I won't dork out on sort of inner circle stuff like that (laughs) where it's like oh yeah it was this venue and you know i think the flyer had because obviously that's not very interesting Uh, to anybody uh,
4: no the the more the 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 things that i get the feedback i get from people (laughs) that listen to the show they love to hear those like super stupid inconsequential details because okay it just it it, yeah it colors the story especially if you if you know it like if you're manufacturing it then of course i don't want to hear that but
0: what well, if, it's all manufactured. You didn't read the book, or? <laughs> no, I'm just checking. That's true. That's very
4: true. But, uh, so, cool. but I just remember that it was uh, you, you're obviously a large person. You have uh, an intimidating presence just by sheer stature alone. Um, but then obviously, you're uh, the moment that like, you smile and approach a human being, it's just like, oh, you're, you're just kind of a puppy dog, you know? Um, yeah,
0: yeah, I'd agree.
4: Is that, I presume that's something that you've kind of, uh, whatever, either adapted to or struggled with your whole life where it's like, people have one perception of you just based on your, you know, cause you, how tall are you? Like six, 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 six five, six, yeah. five. Okay. Um, so yeah, has that been a thing that people have kind of thrusted on you where it's like, um, oh, dude, Matt, Matt Johnson, tall guy, kind of intimidating, kind of scary, but then you know him and he's like, nice.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, so the nice thing is when you are large like this, people don't really pick on you. So, you know, I've never actually been in a physical confrontation my whole life. Part of that was probably because I was pacifist most and still am of my life. But um, but I think I had the luxury of sort of being nonviolent because I was so big and I didn't have a lot of the controversy. So I am this sort of weird Untouched little soul, where it's like I didn't have to experience a lot of the hardship that maybe other folks do who are more vulnerable to either physical violence or just bullying and intimidation. And so it led me to be this kind of happy-go-lucky, overly sort of jolly green giant, friendly type, and uh, and it's worked out well. Except uh, sometimes when you're in a professional setting or like in the Pentagon, for example. Um, that doesn't always play right you know because I was very I came in very <laughs> innocent and um, quickly had my soul crushed but in a good way because it caused me to grow a thicker skin and sort of refine how I approach human communication which is it's not just a one-dimensional thing there are different emotions that need to enter into it so so anyway more than you maybe wanted but um, that's kind of where that came from it's the interesting question line though if you do go there
4: Right. No, I, I, I I mean, I think it's interesting how you, uh, you, you phrased it because it it is, people are always, uh, you know, touting the idea that it's like, uh, oh, like I'm, you know, I'm the same person that you met when, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's a truth to that. If you still, you know, have the same sort of tenets and principles that you believed on that time. But like, you do have to learn how to play ball with like other people and know how to Mm -hmm. like, interact with different situations so like so you did like you said working at the pentagon and and working on a lot of things within the government you probably you know clearly you're going to meet negative 400 people that know what punk or hardcore is so like
0: Mm -hmm. uh, yeah So there was one dude who saw black flag And, um, he definitely didn't look the part, but he definitely ruled. And I made him tell me all the stories. It was in Detroit too. And so I was like, you are legitimate, sir. Um, (laughs) Amazing. So did you,
4: like you said, you had to kind of, did you develop a sort of callousness in regards to like, all right, I have to be like a harder person on, on, you know, in my professional side, but then I still retain who I actually am just stripped away from that.
0: Yeah. So it's honestly, it's something I struggle with quite a bit, um, because, I, I definitely got rolled. And when I say rolled, I mean just sort of like, you know, discounted at, at the face value when I first entered the Pentagon, just because I was so, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed. And it took me a long time, maybe a year to recover from that. Um, but what ended up happening is that I didn't necessarily become a more angry or um, assertive person and really fundamentally change my personality. I just, changed my communication style and then I found for me playing the long game always seems to work so if you continue to be there and sort of Rudy Rudiger the thing where it's like okay we kind of rolled over that guy but he is still here and he can handle it he's and he's still friendly and it kind of makes people go okay well I guess he's not as intimidated as I thought and it kind of works on the long game the short game I'm still honestly still working on stuff like that so then it's like now you know I'm doing consulting so Um, You know, when I approach a client, I can't come across as an individual who is sort of goofy and and ill-informed. So I find the way I do it is to speak with authority on topics and actually know what I'm talking about. And that helps me personally sort of be more assertive rather than rely on, you know, interpersonal dominance or any of those sorts of games. Mm
4: -hmm. Or like the approaching it from a sort of, uh, you know, buddy-buddy standpoint where you're immediately asking them about like, oh, how's Johnny doing or whatever,
0: like... (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, it comes back to what you're talking about earlier, which is, you know, I feel like you and I are similar in that we can pretty much connect with, you know, folks from all sorts of different walks of life. That said... Um, sometimes when you have no common shared history or identity it's hard to really get too pumped up about fantasy football or drinking or eating meat or anything like that so when those are the topics of conversation it's you know you can you can fake it till you make it but a lot of times there is a fundamental disconnect particularly like there's a lot of you know interactions i'll have where i'm i'm eating with clients or you know at the pentagon with folks and it's like well actually I'm vegan and then it's like, Oh God, here we go. You know, And so we have to have this conversation now. Right. Uh, but you know, you find ways to kind of to make it so that you're not totally viewed as this, you know, pariah, weird hippie. Um, but right. it, it ends up playing, I think people find that sort of uniqueness charming in the long run. Um, but well, it you
4: definitely you definitely stand out from that that idea too, where it's like you know people have a difficult time for getting a person who's like you know kind of the the square peg in a
0: round hole. Where it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Th- that
4: guy, yeah, I remember <laughs> that guy. Like ten years ago, I remember eating lunch with him, and he didn't eat any meat. It was weird or whatever. Yeah,
0: because he's like big and he's from Iowa, and I just don't understand. And he was so damn friendly. What is wrong with that guy? <laughs> Right, right. So I think they're like constantly looking for the thing like, oh, he's probably on heroin, you know, or some sort of like, right, like something to justify how weird this person is, because it's like, at every turn, I felt like with a lot of those folks, I was constantly surprising people inadvertently, you know, I really didn't want to stand out. Uh, I wore the suit, you know, and all that stuff. But, but then, you know, and then some ways he assimilate. So I'm sure if I looked at video of myself in some of those meetings, you know, I'd either wince or be like, wait, who is that guy? Because. You start speaking the language and then sort of, you know, there's subtle social cues that you take and you re- absorb and reflect back. And so I'm sure it was just a, you know, a, humans are a product of their environment. And so I'm, I know I reflected that to a large extent.
4: Right. Well, yeah. You you have to play the game. You can't be so yeah. like swimming against the current that like every step mm-hmm. of the way is like a struggle yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back you up to the uh, you were so you were born and raised in Iowa.
0: Yeah, are we going right now by the way? Oh, my friend, we are we're, we're in the middle of it. Oh. <laughs> you are good. Hey. Okay. Um so yes, born and raised on the banks of the Mississippi um in Iowa and I spent, you know, basically the formative years of my life there and went to college um in Iowa, all of that stuff. So so my time in Iowa was interesting and I think honestly it was a huge part of who I am and how I view the world because we didn't have access to a lot of the amenities of bigger city life, particularly in this subculture. We didn't have a lot of the big shows um, or major package tours. We didn't have serious venues. And so before we could freely travel back and forth to Chicago, it was very much about like, okay, we have a show and it's, a ska band i may have been in a ska band i won't disclose that here um it's a punk band it's a you know metal band all on the same thing and we're just all the same people we didn't really know uh what we didn't know because there was no internet to inform us so the cool part about it is you you really define a unique sort of culture and it was for our you know little place it was a it was a cool special time because there was a lot of you know bonds formed that I still have to this day, and it was it was great. Um, and then you go to college, and you experience life like that, and then you're forced in a real way to to live amongst people who didn't have that same upbringing, and and then the other subcultural folks you encounter are also a little bit different because some of them came from Chicago, and so it's this weird dynamic where it's one part homesickness. And sort of longing for the simple old days where everybody was your best friend. And another part, you know, enriching life experience, because now I'm exposed to new ideas, new music, new people and new places to go. So it's kind of a cool place to go. And I know, like in subculture, people would look at bands that came from there. And um, obviously, Modern Life is War is a band that speaks to that experience. And I think they do it pretty authentically. Um, and of course I'm extremely jealous of them because they were way better than any of the bands I was ever in and and definitely better lyricists. So, um, but from, as far as, you know, being a consumer of it, I love it just as much as anyone else, but I really do think they captured that, that special, unique sort of experience of growing up in a small town, but still being subcultural. Um,
4: right. Looking, Looking for something different that's out there.
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: um, Something that always struck me as, as very unique with you was because, uh, you always struck me as a very intelligent guy, like it, not even so much that you were using, you know, hundred dollar words, uh, to impress people or anything, but just like the, the demeanor in which you approach, um, not only obviously the lyrics that you did in both of your bands, um, but then also just in, 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 cheer, in conversation, you can tell a person that is well read and kind of, you know, they know what's up. Um, well, and so you. well, you're welcome. and you, you studied math in, in in college, if I'm not mistaken. Like that was your major, correct?
0: Yeah, I was uh, math and philosophy. And so I always people are like, oh, you're really good at arithmetic. Actually, I'm terrible at it because the type of math that I did was uh, in the world of what they call pure mathematics. So it's almost more like philosophy than it is math. And um, what ended up happening there is, honestly, no kidding. I think I really just like to do puzzles. And this is one of those moments where you look at how your life has evolved and I, you find yourself making decisions that are very transformative in your life on really no important basis. Like, I think, you know, I got to college and I was like, oh, I really like math. So I kept taking math classes. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, I guess I'm a math major. Oh, OK, I'll do a little philosophy on the side. And then it became saying it's like, well, I graduated with a math degree and it was like, well, what do you do now? I guess you just go to math grad school. And so I kept doing it, and I got to the point. I would, The subfield I worked in was called differential topology, and um, it got to the point where the stuff I was working on was like, really, you know, rich and rare. (laughs) So, you know, this was like a group of folks. You want to talk about subculture. I mean, I think there were probably 30 people in the country who are really like jazzed up about this stuff. And if you meet those 30 people, it's like Einstein's looking like he should be on the cover of GQ. You know, it's like we were definitely weirdos um, by definition. And so I think that was the time when I was like, wait a minute, I'm two years into this. I've got a master's degree, I've started a PhD, and I haven't showered in you know about three days. I have chalk in my hair, and I don't really know that I've talked to anybody all week. And so I think that was kind of the breaking point where I was like, I think I'm a little bit more social and socially minded than where I'm going. And so I kind of stopped with the math thing. So that's the math story. It's still a part of me, and I'm really glad I did it, but I definitely don't anymore.
4: Right, right. I, I, the the reason I find it so oh, interesting and fascinating, too, is because obviously the, um, you know, many of the experiences within independent music are obviously trying to, you know, buck every system and kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Um, so the notion that, like, you uh, enjoyed school and you obviously excelled at it to a point of, of pursuing this thing that, like, you know, usually people that get a math degree are supposed to become math teachers. And, like, that's, like, your logical progression. But you kept diving deeper and deeper into something that was like, no, no one in their right mind would ever do that. From, like, especially from, like you said, I like puzzles. And then all of a sudden you're just in this, like, you know, weird subculture of math. Um, what, what is it about? Like, can you attribute that to like, you know, maybe like your upbringing in some capacity where it's like, you just kind of kept, you, you have that, that curiosity about you. How do you always been that way?
0: Okay, you want to get real, Ray? I'm going to tell you some real stuff here because I I, there there is, there is probably, in my perspective, and it might be interesting for folks to hear, it's certainly very personal, but I will tell you um, I am somebody who has constantly thrived throughout my life on the feedback of others. And so I think what happened, honestly, yes, I like to do puzzles, and math was a really sort of entertaining venture for me, but it was also a way for me to... Um, to sort of gain the approval of others by doing well. And whether it was on an assignment or writing a paper that would get published or passing my comprehensive exams or things like that, I felt like, you know, I was trying to use math to sort of fill an inner sort of emptiness in me. Um, And it was a hunt for satisfaction. And so I thought I could get it through external sources. So that would be acceptance from professors and that sort of thing. Um, but it really, you know, you can never fill that glass with external sources. If you have, you know, a fundamental insecurity or some identity issues like that, it's it's kind of a you know endless quest. And so that was probably part of the departure from math two is sort of starting to come to terms with the fact that like, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm okay. You know, I was very much a working class mathematician. I didn't have like a lot of the innate abilities that my colleagues did, but I just. Again, kind of Rudy Rudiger, the thing where I just like kept coming in and hitting it hard. Um, and so for me, it was an important thing because when I stopped doing math, I actually quit to go on tour with the last band I was in. We all kind of quit our jobs, and um, it was a it was a big moment where we were just kind of we didn't really think we were going to be commercially successful, but it was like everyone knew in that point in their lives that they had to to do it to try. Um, to see where it would go. Um, so that's that's fundamentally what it was. And now you are getting deep, my friend. I,
4: well, that, that this is the point of the show, dude. This is, uh, I mean, because I, I think when people are able to uh, actually be introspective and pinpoint, you know, the reasons why they either pursue certain endeavors or obviously look for that sort of validation, I think uh, that's a very universal um, idea that people can like kind of latch on and identify with. Do you, do you think some of that... Um, that that sort of like a yearning of validation like uh, did that come from um i guess your like your family like did you did you feel like there were um areas in which because you, whatever i'm going to typify a midwestern midwestern son's experience of like Clearly, the uh, parents or even more specifically, the father is never going to be like, you know, hugging you and loving you from like a, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a, a liberal standpoint of being like, oh, my gosh, my son is amazing and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, Midwestern. It's like. You got to be tough, kid. You got to, like, I'm never going to say I love you until, you know, you're 40 years old or whatever. Um,
0: yeah, it's like the Russians for America. Um, except, you know, what's really interesting? That wasn't my experience at all. And that's yeah. why, I, honestly, it's something I've really sort of scratched my head on. Like, where did this come from? And so it may have been some sort of weird, sort of chemical thing in my brain, or who knows? Just, you know, I, maybe I latched onto some event that wasn't traumatic in my youth and it just caused me to rewire how I think about, you know, like my own validation and, and value. But um, yeah, it wasn't that cause my parents are like awesome. I talk to them all the time, you know, and, and they're like so supportive. They were definitely cool with all the music stuff we were doing and like tattoos, motorcycles. Like it was, it was nice um, to have a, a solid support structure. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Honestly, this book um, was a huge part of me trying to find out what was happening um, with with myself, you know, and learn a little bit more about myself than maybe I had tried to before.
4: Sure, sure. Um, and so, when did independent music start to kind of uh, infiltrate your life? And like, because, like you said, since you were obviously living in an area that was, uh, you know, culturally devoid of a lot of those easy access points, um, you know, how did you even kind of discover it in the first place?
0: Well, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with my first band, uh, the Sock Monsters, and um, <laughs> I, you know. What I, I, so, I think th- so, this may be repeating for them, um, <laughs> but this is uh, this is also a deep cut. Yeah. So, anyway, I think I was like 13 or 14, and I had a you know my childhood best friend who I'm still like extremely close with. We discovered at the same time, you know, like Green Day, Nirvana, Rancid. Operation Ivy, and we got really jazzed up about you know subcultural music, and so we started playing pretty much immediately. Um, yeah, and the first one was was really kind of oriented about you know around being like Nirvana, and um, we were very terrible. And then it progressed into a series of of band names that somehow even got worse uh, than that, and um, never really did get better. You know, I found myself at like post thirty years old playing with bands that I was like, why is this name still attached? You know, like I should be able to do better than this (laughs) naming wise. But yeah, so I found myself perpetually stuck with really awful band names, but, um, basically from the age of 13 into about 30. So, um, I played, you know, aggressive underground music. And the, um, emphasis on underground by the well, way yeah, of
4: course right right <laughs> <laughs> emphasis on never never making it from a uh full-time making money off this band thing
0: yeah because let's be honest we played shows and you know this is now you're gonna see um in in real time my thoughts about like the success of others which i think is so great i love it when like bands make it and like just to watch what happens. Um, a lot of times, that's a great thing. So we used to play shows with the guys from Modern Life Is War. They were in a band called My Pet Robot, which I was like, okay, you know, we're peers. We both have shitty band names, and um, and then you know, they like went away and they came out as this Modern Life Is War thing, and we were like, oh, well, that's a pretty cool looking seven inch, and oh, wow, that sounds really good. Okay, yeah, they've definitely differentiated themselves. So whatever they did or took during that time when they went away, uh, we didn't. So um, we kind of <laughs> stayed in the world of not being that, but um, it was cool to sort of see how, you know, good things were born from, from that scene too, though.
4: Right. And how to, how to do things the right way. No, just kidding.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
0: I think that's what we're really saying here,
5: Ray. <laughs>
4: um, and so then as you, uh, as you started to, um, like you said, uh, you know, still, still playing bands and obviously take it, you know, seriously from a touring standpoint where you really tried to make yourself available as much as possible for touring. Um, did you feel like you had to kind of uh, live in two worlds as you were obviously also pursuing, you know, career like endeavors throughout that time as well, or were you able to kind of keep both of those balanced from that perspective?
0: Yeah, no, I think I definitely lived personally in two worlds. I think a lot of the guys that we, you know, played in bands with did too, because for me, and I was way too risk averse to sort of put it all on the line In the outset, and so I knew for for me, I wanted to continue my path to learning. Uh, And again, for whatever reason, you know, but I did stay engaged with academia. And so what we would do is tour on breaks, and you know, during the summer and then holidays, whatever. Uh, But yeah, I always sort of perpetually felt like an outsider because you know I was was a little bit different in the punk and hardcore community because I was this guy who was very interested in school and sort of pursuing that aspect of my life. But then at the same time, when I went to school and and did that sort of stuff, I was very much a weirdo to them too. And so it's like interesting. And this is something, you know, one of our common friends who I love dearly, Matt Moody, uh, him and I always sort of talk about this and identify on this, which is there is sometimes where you sort of perpetually feel like an outsider, with the majority of folks regardless of whether it's at work or at shows or anything um and that's why you know i think and maybe it's a product of our youth but you find this core group and you kind of understand each other but then a lot of other folks it's hard because you don't share so much of the experience and you feel somehow different on both sides
4: right right um and did you uh you always had uh I guess ambitions obviously beyond just the band because obviously you were pursuing them so that's a you know an an obvious thing that you had those ambitions but was there the desire that you would kind of drop everything if the band you know were to be more of a focus from like oh here we are getting a record deal and we have to tour 10 months out of the year or would you do you think you'd still try to live in kind of both of those worlds as you were uh, developing your career as well
0: Uh, No, I definitely would have dropped everything if it was commercially viable because it's just so much fun. There is nothing that is more fun to me than sort of getting in a van and driving around the country and playing shows, particularly if there are people at the shows other than yourselves. So um, I think, um, yeah, no, I definitely would have. And, you know, that's kind of what we were thinking in 2006 when we sort of dropped everything. We were, you know, we didn't really think we had a shot at being the next big thing. Uh, And the music may have been a little derivative and, you know, like we we loved it, but it wasn't like, you know, groundbreaking. That said, it was kind of like, well, regardless, we've never had this experience of living this life and we just want to do it because at that point we were like, we know this is our last chance to really try it and we'll just we don't care about money. We're just going to live this life for a little bit
4: right um and so like you uh, like you mentioned earlier so the uh so sock puppet was like your your first actual band uh, like, sock monster sock right. monster sorry sorry i don't mean to <laughs> i don't mean to try to give you a better band name or anything <laughs> i'm just kidding with you um so was that was that did you guys like play shows actively in regards to like you know just like a little regional shows or was your first kind of touring experience was with preacher gone to texas
0: also a great name, aren't we doing good here? Um, so yeah, first touring experience was was pre chirk on the Texas because we started that pretty early on. I think we had just graduated high school and that band uh, went on our first quote unquote tour, um, which was a total debacle by the way, like we didn't really understand how the whole thing works but um, but it was it was probably the best tour I ever went on
4: and as you started to. Cause you definitely seemed like the type of person that was uh, a lot of the business was falling on your shoulders. Is, is that true? Or was there other people in the band that, I mean, everybody contributes in their own way. I'm not meaning to like section you off from everybody else, but were you the guy like booking the shows and doing a lot of the business stuff in the band?
0: Yeah. Traditionally, um, I would book the tours and then we had folks who did other stuff. Matt Moody, who I mentioned earlier, he would design a lot of the merch, um, and and then we kind of just do it, you know, very much a bootstrapped operation. Um, but you know, there are these horrifying elements when you think back to like how you did things, um, both from an efficiency standpoint, but also, you know, like like I didn't, we didn't care. We deliberately didn't care about like s- defining a brand or an identity or anything like that. But let me just give you one an anecdote about how much we didn't care because our first tour. We ended up in Long Island, New York. Somehow we had actually gotten like a legitimate show with with people and and bands that were, you know, like, I think it was the predecessor to the band This Is Hell. They were called Subterfuge. And we were playing with them. And I remember we went up before they did. I was wearing corduroy cargo shorts. So that's a mouthful. I was and then wearing a t-shirt which said love, period. You know, and I was like, that's great. That is a tremendous powerful message. But when you look at the ensemble on a six foot five guy from Iowa playing at a band called preacher gone to Texas, it just didn't work. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's certain elements where you're like, dude, you guys got to like, just, we're not telling you not to wear like tight black leather pants or anything like that, but just put away the corduroy shorts and the love shirt.
4: <laughs> I, I, it almost would have been as good if you showed up in like overalls with no shirt. Like,
0: Oh, don't even get me started on the overalls. Cause that was a thing where I actually thought, you know, I, like, went through this, like, hot water music thing, and I, I really identified with, like, the idea of having a beard and wearing overalls. And I don't even think hot water music, like, wore overalls or Gainesville people did. But, like, I was like, oh, this is the Iowa version. And so I certainly did tour, Ray, um, with the overalls on. And it was it was, you know, not my proudest moment. And I will say this, too. The beard wasn't one of those cool... Like, oh, I got a big beard. It was a like chin strap where I shaved the mustache and it was like an Abraham Lincoln thing. But to my credit, it was like 1999. So let's just back up and make sure everyone knows that, too.
4: Of course, you got to put it in historical context (laughs) because at at that time, people on maybe the East Coast and West Coast were obviously still wearing jinkos. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so overalls in the Midwest, is it? that's not too far removed from something that's like uh, horrific to look back on pictures on.
0: You know what, Ray? I just, I love where you're going with this one here.
4: <laughs> I like it. Um, and so then the, uh, obviously like you, I mean, I, prior to meeting you, you and obviously Matt Moody, um, I had heard of your band name. So it was like there, there was, uh, pockets where it was filtering
0: out <laughs> to Look, small pockets. Let's yeah. be honest, but they were there. But
4: I mean, I, I, I think there's the, the charm of the fact that it's like, um, Oh, wow. Like melodic hardcore was doing well in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, you know, people were paying attention to it across the country. So it was like it was only natural that obviously bands from the Midwest where it's like, you know, you guys, 12 tribes, like whoever was doing that mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. stuff that it started to kind of trickle out to the East Coast and West Coast. Like, did you did you feel new momentum with the band in regards to uh, like people paying attention to it or, or was it kind of just like, well, I mean, we had a few good shows, but the rest of it was kind of always, a, always uphill struggle.
0: I mean, honestly, like both bands that I was in, the only momentum we ever like felt was related to potential label partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Preacher, I think there was like one option, and it might have been um, Sean Mutaki, the guy from Vegan Reich. He has a label, or used to. I think it was called Uprising Records. Absolutely, uh, first, so- first
4: first first Fallout Boy record.
0: There you go. Hey, you know what I'm saying? I greatness do. recognizes greatness, right? And that's why I'm talking today about re-releasing the record. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Or are we not?
4: Right. I think so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> good. Anyway, so I think at that point, like right before we broke up, here's a good story for you. Maybe. I don't know. I think I have other better stories, but I'm just going to tell you this one. Um, we talked to Sean Mutaki, and he was like, yeah, we might be interested, blah, blah, blah. And so there was a little momentum there. At the same time, my friend Matt Fox, and if he hears this, he'll laugh, but he was had just lost gear um, from the band Shai Halud, the singer, um, and he was like looking for a new singer, and of course me being the incredibly loyal, wonderful friend I am, immediately jumped at the opportunity and said, sorry, guys, got to go try out for Shia Lude. And, um, and then, by the way, Ray, this does not paint me in a very good picture. Can we like edit this so it sounds a little bit more... <laughs> hey, man,
4: just real, realist to the real here. It's okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but anyway, what I ended up doing is going and trying out for Shia Lude and then kind of put um, this other band, Preacher Gone to Texas, on the rocks. Um, and to be fair, we had some other stuff that was kind of slowing us down. And, and so then, yeah, that band never experienced, you know, anything further, um, other than a couple of really wonderful, fun reunion shows that we did. Um, and by the way, I never played with Shia Lude either. So it was kind of just one of those things where it, it, you know, ran its course.
4: Right. Right. Um, the, uh, so then obviously as your eye turned towards, um, you know, just basically focusing on, on all the career stuff you're developing, because you've, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it up is because you've held some really, really interesting jobs in places that, like I joked around earlier, you wouldn't find people involved in subculture being drawn to like, you know, working at the Pentagon, working, um, with the various agencies. I'm not going to even pretend like I know them all. You can obviously be more specific with them. Um, but so like the, the pull towards government work, like that, that started to happen, um, you know, in your early twenties, correct?
0: Yeah. So, um, so here's we'll link up the two stories because basically what happened is I quit math and started going on tour with the last band um, that I was in called Ignite the Will and we you know actually those tours were were moving along fine and we, you know we weren't living off it by any stretch but it was like fun enough that we were doing that and then working jobs in between and um, on those tours for whatever reason. I remember I started reading nonfiction books for the first time ever. You know, the only thing I had really read up to that point was either a math book or a philosophy book. And so we went to a—I remember very vividly, and I write about it in the book, too, which is we went to a thrift store somewhere in between Fresno and Anaheim on I-5, and um, I picked up this book. It was called Brighter Than the Thousand Suns. It was 50 cents. It was written by some German guy in the 50s, and it was basically a book about uh, the Manhattan Project, uh, which was the U.S. initiative to build a nuclear weapon. And I I seriously have no idea why I picked it up, but I started reading it, and I got incredibly fascinated with the idea that 235,000 people would be sort of joining secretly to try and, you know, prevent one of what they saw is the, you know, collapse of a, gl- a good global sort of order. And, um, and it was, it was really, I mean, there's like some anecdotes in there that are pretty fascinating on a personal level, just like how they lived and how they couldn't tell their families and that sort of stuff. But the, the whole size and scope of the thing really just blew my mind. And it, and, inspired in me a new interest in sort of public affairs and national security that i had never sort of known and existed before and wasn't totally divorced from a lot of the ideals and thoughts that I'd already had. It was just a new way to apply some of that. So I read that book and then started reading a lot of books about war conflict and then even some social uh, topics like black nationalism and things like that. And just got sort of genuinely interested in nonfiction and reading and learning about history in the the of this country and other countries, and and decided that I wanted to do something in this world. Um, and so I called a friend who worked at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and I said, "Hey, can I get a job?" And she's like, "Yeah, you want to do some math?" And I was like, "Oh, no, no." no. I want to do, like, policy work. You know, I want to help define the future of this country. And she's like, oh, no, you can't do that with that degree. You have to get another one. So I said, okay. And which degree is that? She's like, it's public policy. And so that's when I decided that I was going to go back to school uh, and get um, a degree in public policy with a focus on national security.
4: Right, which, <laughs> like hearing you lay it out, it sounds so practical. It sounds like, oh, okay, like <laughs> the step by step process. But like, I mean, those are huge fucking leaps, dude. Like those That's are hu- weird. <laughs>
0: those are huge, I'm, like weirdo, dude. I'm telling you, I still can't put my head around like what am I doing in this place? And by this place, I mean Earth. Right.
4: <laughs> I just, I, I find it. Um, because I mean, I think it's it's very interesting. Like I, uh, I mean, I got turned on to a lot of the same things that you did through, like um, you know, the the vocalist of like Cursed and Left for Dead, Chris Callahan. Like he would have this uh-huh. like book list of like you know uh, the art of killing and like all of these things that uh, these these books that obviously spoke about war from a very like hey, when soldiers get sent off to war, they come back like clearly not the same individual, and like we're uh-huh. not we're not we as a country are not able to uh, handle what these people are afterwards. And so it's like you know I read a book like that, and I'm like man, that's fucked up. But like, that's where my yeah. action ends. Whereas you were like, I like th- just the way that you said it, I would like to change the po- the policy in the country. Um, that's like, that's like I said, those are huge leaps. And like, did you, I don't know. I just find it so interesting that that you wanted to you wanted to actually be a part of the system because you felt like obviously you could change it as opposed to, you mm-hmm. know, people uh, like myself who obviously are on the outside. And it's like, well, I could change through my behaviors and influencing those around me. But you're like in it from the nuts and bolts standpoint.
0: Yeah, I, I really had a genuine curiosity how it operates from the inside and you know because i knew what advocacy looked like you know i i'm sure you know when i was 16 i had a mumia abu jamal flyer on a merch table and i'm sure i listened to 15 and like had a lot of the same ethics and social causes but i really wanted to see like is this so bad like what are we really what are we really doing within these institutions and are they fundamentally flawed in some way or are there, you know, well-meaning folks who are trying to do the best that they can for this country? And so that's what drove me into the field. Originally, I don't think I necessarily thought I was going to work in the Pentagon, um, but that's kind of where I ended up. And it was it was a really fascinating place on so many levels because you're, you're going to work. So it's the largest low-rise office building, 6.5 million square feet. You're going to work with 23,000 people every day. And um, so obviously, there's a lot of different offices. I worked within the Office of the Secretary of Defense, which may sound fancier than it is. The Office of the Secretary of Defense is about, for me, it was about 1,000 people. Um, so that's a pretty big office. Don't worry. We weren't all in the same office. Right. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, um, so you go in there, and you know, there's like seven different food courts. You've got Starbucks. There's like a Best Buy within the Pentagon, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and then you go, okay— so I'm going to work in this building. I don't really leave every day, um, you know, in a real way. I just, you know, live and work in this building for eight to twelve hours a day, and then I'm going to immerse myself in what it means to to work for the Department of Defense. And um, so here's where, by the way, I'll just give one little caveat: I was not an actual government employee. I was a non-governmental uh, under the. Intergovernmental Personnel Act. I don't know that you need to put that in there, but just so you know, I'm saying it to you, whatever. Um, Anyway, so, so, so,
1: At I,
4: I, I know, I mean, because it, it sounds, it, it, it's so, like I said, I, I like the idea of what you're talking about, where it's like, it's easy to, you know, throw stones at such a uh, easy target, such as, you know, the government and, and the army. Uh, but then, obviously, like you said, you had the vested interest where you're like, let me peek under this hood and see how, like, is this really Uh, you know, a bunch of evil people, um, you know, twirling their mustaches? Or is it like, no, there's like 98% of the people that work here are, you know, good and noble people trying to do better for our country. And then there's, you know, maybe the 2% of people who are just, you know, selfish and not evil. Um, mm-hmm. but I just, I, I like that. I, I like that notion of the way that you are approaching it, but yeah, please, please do tell me the other, uh, I guess weird, interesting facts of like, you know, cause I, I mean, I think very few people will uh, ever enter the Pentagon as the way that you have.
0: <laughs> no. Um, so, so I won't, um, let me see what's and obviously, this is somewhat sensitive territory. It's not Please, really. Yeah I, I, um,
4: yeah, I don't. want I, I don't need any black helicopters coming over our, our my house or your house. Obviously. <laughs>
0: yeah, no doubt. But no, nothing. I mean, this is this is all fine. Um, what we've we've said so far. And by the way, so like, here's what I'll do. I'll tell you sort of what I did in a very quick nutshell and then what my impressions were. So the, the standing question here, so we're going to intrigue our listeners maybe if we haven't already lost them, no, um, no, there is. Is, <laughs> is, you know, it's is that, are these people fundamentally, you know, like nefarious or flawed in some way or is the system itself nefarious or flawed or, you know, or is it just well-meaning folks who are impeded by a very, huge bureaucracy. In fact, the world's largest bureaucracy. So long-winded question. Here's what I'll say. So the program I worked on was very different. It was a new program under Hillary Clinton and Secretary of Defense Robert Gates to have the Department of State and the Department of Defense come together and jointly respond to contingencies around the world. So rather than have us and the Department of Defense go separately separately, do our own thing, and then have the State Department come in and do something totally different and not know who those Americans are across the field, we could now say, let's all think about it together and fund, plan, and respond to these things together. And so what am I really talking about? So I'm talking about like when governments collapse or when there's a serious security incident around the world. So you could think of countries that are in the news, maybe countries like Libya or um Nigeria with Boko Haram or other countries that face sort of serious threats. Um, The idea would be to rethink how the United States government engages with foreign partners to help them sort of protect their own people and advance their own interests. Okay, well, that's kind of still a little lofty, but the idea is, okay, so you're going to work with some partners to help them sort of stop people from doing bad things. Very simplified answer, but that's what we were doing. So what did I see? Like, how did it work? Well, it's really fascinating, right? Because this is like a sociologist or an anthropologist's dream to get in there and watch how it's, you know, like basically a human zoo, you know, and you have personalities across the gamut. I remember my first meeting, and I wrote about it in the book, was basically um, a meeting that was with lawyers and all sorts of folks about a program. And the meeting actually, no kidding, erupted into a screaming match over the placement of an apostrophe before the S or after the S. <laughs> admittedly, it, it could have been, you know, it's a little ambiguous, but what I was witnessing, this is my first government meeting and grown adults, are screaming at each other over placement of, of apostrophe, and, and there was an abrupt ending to that meeting. It was like, okay, meeting over. I'm not talking about this anymore. And I was like, oh wow, this is really fascinating. I don't know if I'm made out for this sort of thing, right? Um, but you know, you come to find out, okay, well, what's really going on there? That's a longstanding sort of interpersonal issue that had pre-built tension that was not about the apostrophe at all. And so it's like, okay, so I could point the finger at this one anecdote and say, look, the government is so screwed up. But I think what I ended up sort of finding and the sort of the big picture of what I view as, you know, like our United States government after having lived in there is that really fundamentally it's not different in, in any real way than how people interact on the outside. So now I've worked in large businesses, small businesses in the government, and I think fundamentally you find that human beings have conflicts and they have, um, a whole range and gamut of emotions when they work together. And so sometimes you have tension and sometimes you have excitement and sometimes you have the doldrums. And so I saw nothing in the Pentagon that was necessarily any better or worse than any other organization. And I will say this, the, in terms of sort of looking at it in normative terms or, you know, how are these people? Honestly, no kidding, these were some of the best, smartest people I worked with ever and some of the most morally-minded folks um, ever. Now, granted, I wasn't working on programs that sort of had anything to do with the warfighter or fighting wars or even using guns. Uh, our work was very much more about um, development, almost Mm-hmm. in providing countries with money and training and equipment. But that said, you know, I, I worked with a lot of folks who worked a lot of different jobs and there were there were some really good folks in there.
4: Right. Well I think it's very uh it's very emblematic where it's like it takes a lot of effort to get to places like and I mean, I'm speaking <laughs> in general terms where it's like people, of course, there's there's the there's the common perception that it's like, uh, you know, whatever, not smart people tend to like fall up or it's like, you know, oh, if they have like a family that has money or whatever. And it's like all oh, these people end up in cushy jobs and blah, blah, blah. But it's like a majority of people like work to get to these places and it's not easy to get there. It's like, yeah, maybe once they've actually held that position, like maybe it's easier to be lazy or whatever, just because, you know, they're resting on laurels or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, like you said, when you're kind of in the trenches and doing the war, doing the actual work of diplomacy, or like you said, building these, these programs that could essentially help countries rebuild after, um, you know, a, a despot ruins it. Uh, it's, you can't help but look at that and be like, Oh yeah. Like, people are fucking good. Like people are trying their goddamn best. Like it's right.
1: it, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It,
4: it, it, rather, rather than just like, you know, like I said, kind of uh, taking it from the, the wide view where it's like, everything's broken. You shouldn't care. Don't vote. It's, it's, it's all the worst. It's, like, <laughs> it's easy to take that stance.
0: Right. Right. And, you know, I, I certainly have a lot of friends who are, you know, in the anarchist camp, Uh, And that's sort of their position. And and I, you know, I find that it's like, okay, that's fine. I I definitely respect your position. Um, But, you know, for me, I had to see it myself. And, you know, I did not leave um, on bad terms. And I left with a, a profound respect for what people do, because I know it's easy to point the finger, you know, obviously, in pure human terms, the Pentagon is probably one of the most violent institutions in human history when you just look at the, the number of people that have been killed at the hands of a United States weapon. So that is unequivocal. That is a fact. OK. But um, what, you know, could we have done a lot of that better? Absolutely. You know, there's, you know, like, for example, when in that first book I read, Brighter than 1000, sons, um, you know, one of the arguments they make there is that we actually did not need to drop a nuclear weapon. Japan was probably within 14 days of surrendering uh, when we did that. Why did we do it? Well, it probably wasn't just to be mean. It was to set an example for the Russians um, and some of the other communist foes that we were increasingly concerned about. Was that the right move? Maybe not, you know. Um, So it's not to say everything by any stretch Um, these organizations have done is is really great. But it's also at the same time, not one human driving this. And so it's like easy to brand an entire institution as bad. But what we find is really, it's human beings that are driving the institution to do it. So it's like, you almost have to talk about institutions and governments in terms of time periods, right? So United States during World War Two, maybe was acting in one more way, and the United States during Vietnam was, you know, on another moral footing. And so it's like, despite being the same institution, it has a lot of sort of more complexity to it. Right. And now we're officially in like the most boring podcast ever. Do you think, Ray? No,
4: no, not at okay. all. Cause this, this is the Good. sort of, I, I, I don't like to get people's opinions that personally haven't gone through stuff on their own. Like, you know, I, I never, I never tend to tread on politics uh, too much within the context of the show, but it's like, there was no way that I could, um, uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on because it was, uh, you, you have a much more holistic view to this thing rather than just like me asking a singer of a band, what their view of the you know, 2016 election is, it's like, that's the, uh, that's, a, that's boring. <laughs> like that doesn't, <laughs> that's one person's opinion, um, that yeah. is so far removed from the political system in which, in which they reside in. Um, so yeah, that's what it's it, it, to, uh, to answer, to answer your question, Matt, no, it is not boring at all. Um, and even if it's just exciting to me, like too bad, the listeners have to suffer through it <laughs> um, and so kind of mentioning the uh, the I was really really excited um, obviously you mentioned like once uh, books and nonfiction started to become a huge part of your life um, the fact that you wrote a book and you got it out there and the way that you portrayed it um, not only like in your sort of uh, you know marketing of it from like Kickstarter and raising the uh, the, the funds to get your book out there um, it was a very because normally a lot of those things, like the the Kickstarter campaigns or any sort of online petition to raise money, uh, some of it can feel, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't even so I wouldn't even so far as to call it like icky, but it's like you know, a person's just like you know, you feel it's like online panhandling, where it's like, oh, yeah.
0: oh and, god, tell me about it. I felt so concerned about doing that. You know, I hated every moment of it. Right. So wa-
4: yeah, walk me through your. So I mean, you're. Your book, just for obviously everybody to know by namesake, American Hearts. It's written obviously by you um, and you funded it through Kickstarter. But yeah, walk me through your, your, your I guess, mental process on like preparing the actual book and then obviously like trying to birth it to the world.
0: Great. Um, so here's how the book was born. Um, so I just said all these wonderful, interesting things about, oh, the Pentagon was great. I left with profound respect. All very true. But I will tell you this. When you work in a large bureaucracy, you can see sort of where your life might end up in, say, thirty years. So I occupied one box on a very, very, very large organizational chart, and I could kind of see, like, okay, if you know X, Y, and Z happen, I might end up at this box, which is you know maybe halfway up the chain to you know of the entire spectrum of leadership at um, the Pentagon. Okay, so so cool, man. So now you're fast forwarding and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm now going to be about 65 years old and I'm going to live up here. I'll probably live in the suburbs of Virginia. I'll make this much money, you know, would have a family, blah, blah, blah. That's my life. Okay. So as I did that exercise and I thought about like where, you know, my decisions and my work was taking me, I was sort of, scared in a lot of ways, because as you mentioned earlier, I'm not one that's necessarily followed a, a very straight path in my you know life or career. And it was certainly a winding road. And so what I found was I was very scared and I wanted another outlet to make sure I didn't lose sort of that part of me, which was much more rooted in creative energy um, and, you know, the same creative energy that led me to play in bands. So what did I do? I said, okay, like, here's the thing about my work. I love it. I feel like it is doing some good stuff um, for for our foreign partners. That's great. But I didn't really understand on a very human-to-human level what was being done. And so, like, when I would, you know, talk about programs, it was in the millions of dollars. And, you know, and when we were delivering services or equipment, it was in the tens of thousands or more quantities. And so it really wasn't a human story that I could pull out from that um, directly anyway. And so my objective with this was to start writing down stories uh, about American people that maybe weren't known, um, and the idea being that we could connect on a real level with people that we didn't know. And I I found power in these anonymous folks. Um, like Mike Sulsona is a guy I wrote about in the book. He was a Vietnam vet who lost his legs um, after stepping on a landmine, very much unremarkable in terms of, you know, life achievements or anything like that. But to me, one of the most remarkable people ever, because he, um, you know, really throughout the course of his life has sort of been what I would see as a model American in a lot of ways. And so, like, I wanted to tell his story. Or, you know, like Chuck Taylor, uh, obviously a very well-known figure, but no one knows that despite having the shoe named after him, the Converse All-Star, it wasn't because he was a good basketball player. It's because he was probably the best salesperson in American history. And so I wanted to be able to share these stories. But at the same time, I wanted to do it using the same writing tools that the Pentagon had given me. So the idea there was you write one page or less for everything. Um, And so each of these stories was meant to be one page or less, so roughly three hundred fifty words, and I started writing them i I loved it. I made a little blog um, and put them up, and then always had the vision to make it into a book, but was afraid to tell anybody that I was writing a book because i didn't want to let people down if i didn't finish um, and so for a while, there, I just did the blog and then slowly got to the point where I realized I could do the entire book and so Decided at that point I was going to do a Kickstarter because, unlike everything else in my life, whether it was with bands and music um, or at work, I wanted to fully own every step of this process, not just to be a maniacal genius or, you know, sort of overprotective of the work, but I just wanted something that was authentically mine um, and just so I could use it as a pure form of expression because, despite telling other people's stories, that book very much helped me sort of define my own story in a lot of ways and, and realize sort of what I was doing with my life and where I was going. Um, so anyway, that's what I did. And and I feel like i very lucky that it was able to be um, kick-started with folks like you. Thank you. And um, able to share that message um, that this still is a community, even though we're not playing in bands or anything that literally the folks from punk and hardcore music enabled me to fund, you know, a thousand hardcover books that I can now distribute through uh, local shops and Amazon and, and like, you know, just have that as a very important part of, of my life now.
4: Right. Well, you're, I mean, it's, you're a published author. Like, it, that's, that's a thing. And that's, it doesn't matter that you put it at yourself. Like, you didn't have Random House <laughs> swooping in on it. It was a, it's, it's a, I mean, it's the same way that you feel when like, you know, your band puts out a demo tape. It's like you have this physical manifestation of like all of these, you know, struggles and impressions and, uh, you know, individual goals and desires. And it's like, oh, wow, like here's this thing like this will, you know, it won't live on forever, but it'll live on forever in my head. I accomplished this. So, yeah, I I get the enthusiasm. And (laughs) like we were mentioning before I was recording the um, the, I mean, I'm so excited anytime I see friends accomplish something but then when i see it start to filter out to other places that uh you know I, I might not have predicted a friend's work to kind of filter out through so it's like i i i saw more than one person like within our circle of friends obviously mentioned your book by either you know donating money to it or whatever but then when uh when Randy Blythe from Lamb of God uh posted you know this photo of like him reading your book i was like Jesus, like this is really, really cool that that popped up. Um, I presume you have more than one, not not only feeling towards that, but like another anecdotal story that obviously uh, impressed you, like sort of the reach of the book <laughs> in ways that you were like, oh wow, I didn't expect, <laughs> I didn't expect this person to read it or whatever.
0: Yeah, honestly, that to me has been, I mean, it, the thank you to to me, I call it a short book with a long thank you list because, I mean the number of people that made this thing happen is is really like it blew my mind. And it's, it's definitely not hyperbole. Like it literally blew my mind that that many people would care. But then what you're talking about, the fact that it ever went anywhere beyond those people really uh, fundamentally like just kind of moved me in a real way. And so, yeah, when Randy posted that, a picture. And of course it's a beautiful picture on a beach because Randy gets to do all this cool stuff. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Holy shit. That's my book. Oh my God, what's going on? And, um, and then I read the words that he wrote and they were so thoughtful. Um, it really, I mean, I, I wrote him and I was like, man, you have no idea what this means to me. Um, and not just because, you know, you've now helped me sell some more books or anything like that, but just an artist I respect to have them, read something that to me was, you know, I think you put so much time into this stuff, you don't know if it's good or bad by the end of it. And so it's like there was some real validation um, in in that, and it really meant the world. Um, But here's what I will say, sort of tying back to some of the earlier stuff I said. I think this book, if I'm really honest with myself, Ray, started from those same insecurities that led me to continue studying math for who knows why and then to you know go to grad school and then to like try and get a fancy Pentagon, Pentagon job and all that stuff. I think fundamentally the glass was still somewhat empty in all those endeavors. And so then this book was another way for me to, okay, I can show people that I can write and tell a story. And you know And, and what I found out as I sort of worked my way through the writing of that book, And how I end the book is realizing that I don't need to sort of look outward. And this is a very basic sort of rudimentary lesson. But for me, it it finally hit home that I cannot continue to look outward uh, to sort of define my value in in this world. And regardless of whether I produce another thing that's of worth to other people, I need to first focus on doing things that help me realize that, you know, I can – love and respect myself in a real way. And so so it's kind of a weird dichotomy where seeing things like what Randy posted and other folks, it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. That's so cool. And it's a really quick burst of energy. But then I still have to remind myself that it's like, well, that's great. But if you really want to find some true satisfaction in this rest of your time here, you need to do it on your own. Um, and sort of rely on making sure you're, you're whole before you seek out other augmented sources of validation.
4: You you could not have tied this with a more uh, appropriate bow, my friend. You just you just wrapped up the package nicely. You, you you got to the bottom of a lesson that you learned from all this. It's like I didn't even need to do anything. I probably could have just brought you on and like talk <laughs> for an hour and then be like, All right, thanks, Matt. That's all I needed to do.
0: <laughs> no, if if you did that, I would have just talked about the sock monsters, man. <laughs> that's the one that got away. That is the one that got away. Uh, that's true, that's
4: true. I, I could yeah, I, I I was all I was was I was a I was a I was a corral for you. I was a fence <laughs> <laughs> to keep to keep you on the path and then we would eventually end up to a place where you can just uh, tee it up and uh, let it let it fly or whatever sports analogy you want to use there so <laughs> but thank you very much matt this has been fun for me i hope uh, you have enjoyed taking a trip down memory lane as well
0: i absolutely loved it ray and i really do appreciate what you do and and who you are you are very and i'm not doing this just to puff you up you are a very <laughs> special person in a real way and I've always respected the things you do. And, and you are one of those folks who surprises me in, a, in the best ways. You know, like you said, you, you've also sort of walked a winding road through your life. And it's cool to see people from punk and hardcore enter the real world and do the best things like what you're doing now. So thank you for having me.
4: Well, I, I appreciate it. This is, this
0: was a, this is just a
4: mutual love fest from all around. So <laughs> you
0: know, it really is Ray. <laughs> um, if you guys haven't heard, there's this band called taken <laughs> great band. Great. Yeah, I'll Kodo, just, also a great band.
4: I'll just, I'll, I'll just let you be my hype man. Follow we'll We'll follow <laughs> each other around and be like, do you know that this guy's really cool? Right. <laughs> 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 all right. That was Matt. Great stories, right? Like I said, you can tell that he knows how to weave a yarn, and that's why his book is so great. So like I said, American Hearts is the title of it. Go to Amazon, pick yourself up a copy. It's super, I don't want to use the word cute, but just the shape of it. It's very, it's almost, you can fit in your pocket. It's just a little bit bigger than a notebook, but there is so much great stuff in there, and I loved my Time Reading That Book, because books are, are great to read, right? You should be doing that anyway. So thank you very much, Matt, for taking the time out of your day to jump on the show. And uh, later this month, our four-year anniversary, big guest, someone who I've tried to have on the show. Well, not tried to, just pursued him for quite some time in regards to coming on this show. And finally, I got him, and it was a great discussion. So I'm not going to tell you it is. Got to keep you in suspense for another, another couple weeks. So, um, yeah. That's that. And until next week, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network,
3: jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?